Welcome to Arrows on Air, presented by Tomorrow's Air. I'm Christina Beckman, and this is a show about the other sides of climate action. Here we learn from the fascinating experiences of adventurers, artists, storytellers, and scientists who help show us not only the how of climate action, but also why it's worth the effort. Hello and welcome. In today's conversation, I'm talking with Christina Liala Gale about tourism and climate change in Samoa. Christina is Sustainable Tourism Manager at the Pacific Tourism Organization. A working mother of six, she currently lives with her family in Fiji, but spent much of her life in Samoa. Christina is so warm and her conversation so genuine. I think you'll feel this as much as I did. She really opened my eyes to parts of Samoan life that I didn't know before. For example, we talk about land ownership and the fact that Samoans can't own land and how this impacts the people who live there and their options when it comes to adapting to climate change. She highlights a key part of Pacific culture, that islanders are centered around community and shared prosperity. She shares how locals feel about tourism, why sustainable tourism is the key to preserving host villages and countries. We talk a little bit about cruise and the benefits of small ship expedition cruising too. Along the way, we discover a shared affection for John Denver and why Christina's husband does all the cooking in their family. I hope you enjoy this conversation. So Christina, I'm so happy to get you on this show. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you for inviting me. We met through the Adventure Travel Trade Association in this session um, on Pacific Islands and climate change. And I did not realize even through that whole conversation, I'm so bad. You're Samoan, uh, but this is not the same as American Samoa. Can you first like set me straight? <laughs> Where are you from? <laughs> Thank you, Christina. I'm actually from the independent state of Samoa. We used to be called Western Samoa. We were colonized by Germany and um, uh, in very, um, a very short and brief um, background on our history, we were formerly one group of islands. Uh, but during the colonization period, the great powers, which is um, Great Britain, Germany, and the U.S., um, fought over the islands. And um, there was a decision to divide the islands of Samoa. And so the western part of the islands became western Samoa, where I'm from. And American Samoa was taken over by um, the U.S. Um, so we speak the same language, um, have the same culture. But we are structured, you know, politically and economically in different ways. Um, so Samoa, where I'm from, was the first um, Pacific Island to become independent in 1962. So this year, um, we celebrated um, 60 years of independence. That's remarkable. And I need to clearly spend more time in my history book. <laughs> Say, can you give us a greeting in your language? Talofalaba. Mm, what's that? Hello. Hello. And um, I think there's a beautiful um, way of um, looking at talofa because A-L-O-F-A at the end, alofa means love. So practically sharing love. This is beautiful. Beautiful. Well, but we're off to a wonderful start. So 
Um, I want to know, we're going to obviously talk about tourism and climate, which I know you're very involved in, but tell us how you got started in tourism. I want to know how you got to this, to this point. It seems like there are probably a lot of different paths you could have chosen. Yeah, um, thank you so much. I mean, I, after schooling, I went back to Samoa. I um, studied university in Fiji, and as um, students, we have to go back and serve our our countries. And so, we were um, called by government to serve in different uh, government agencies. It was sort of a, a directive. When you got called to go back and work in the tourism office, how did you feel about that? Had you studied tourism or did you have a sense of it? No, not at all. I had never dreamt of working in the tourism industry. I imagined myself um, sitting in the uh, Ministry of Finance or the mm. Reserve Bank, um, mm. Central Bank of Samoa. That was my dream job was to, because I took economics and that was my passion. Uh, I studied economics um, in university. And so, um, yeah, um, it was very, very difficult for me. I dragged myself to work on the first day. Mm. I even questioned um the people who had put me through to the tourism office and I said, well, I didn't take any tourism papers. Please help me, but I, I don't want to work there. I don't know what I will contribute to the country. Mm. Well, they said, ah, they um, actually asked for somebody who took economics in university, so um, you have no choice but go. <laughs> Look at that. Yeah, That's so interesting. really fascinating. I think um, uh, tourism is is definitely depends on people with a smart economic mindset and doesn't actually, you know, a lot of people are drawn to tourism for different reasons, right? Not economics, you know, more like I love the beach or I love to hike. Yes. And I, you know, um, one of my, uh, when I was in high school and I think primary school as well, um, the only um, time I would be away from home would be um, going to school um, and so on my way to school in the bus, the, the public transportation, I would be thinking about travel um, and how nice it would be to be on um, a plane and going somewhere else. So, yeah, that was my, my, my dream of uh, travel. But, yeah, I never thought I would be working in the industry. And so then what – so all of these all these years later – you stayed. You didn't just do your tour. You must have found something to sink your teeth into. What what hooked you intellectually? I think for me, it was the constant learning mm. uh, because it's such a dynamic sector. Like you're never bored at work. Um, today, you can be doing training. Tomorrow, you can be doing um meetings with uh, tourism operators um, who are, some are nice, some are not too nice. Um, but <laughs> you also talk to um, people in the villages, in the community. So mm. I got to see my country for the first time, um, traveling to every single village of, I think, 
the 360 villages in my country. Wow. So because I was part of a, um, I was just uh, taking notes and minutes of um, a committee. It's called the National Purification Committee. And mm. so there was a, a village purification um competition and so we had to organize um, all the judges uh, to come around and we go in the, around the island and visit all the villages and see which one is more beautiful <laughs> so it took me to all the villages um, took me to um, the four um, inhabited islands of the country um, and I never imagined myself going around Samoa so um, yeah that was um, so amazing to me and I still remember seeing all those villages for the first time. What has gotten me in tourism is it does intersect so many complicated topics yes you know like local livelihoods and yes. conservation yes. and how do you you know how this of course you with your economics background but how do you provide for both goals you know tourism is an economic driver it brings yes. in money yes. and it can also support conservation and it can benefit local livelihoods but it doesn't do that automatically, does it? Yeah, that that is so true. There's a lot of hard work, um, mm. and that's required. And everybody needs to play their part. Mm. And so, um, yeah, it it means government has to provide that enabling environment for small businesses to flourish. Um, we need to have the proper trainings um, for to expose our people to the way we deal with um, visitors, you know, mm. people from all over the world, you know. Um, mm. We are naturally hospitable people in the Pacific. Um, but when you're serving someone in a hotel or a mm. restaurant, you know, there's standards and, you know, um, there's uh, communication because language can mm. be a barrier. You know, we don't speak English every day. We have to mm -hmm. communicate in English. And sometimes our people are very shy when they speak in, in English. And mm -hmm. so there's all those things, um, you know, contribute, you know, those small. Um, but, you you know, it can be um, the, um, what you call, what will make your business successful. And it can also be, you know, um, doing your business, uh, um, you know, a detrimental, you know, um, you know, take you out of business if you don't mm. provide that customer service there eh? because, you mm. know, um, tourism is a people industry. You have to please everyone and smile and everything. <laughs> if people paid for it, they're entitled to it. Yes. There is like an interesting dynamic. Well, tell me what you've seen in the way of changes over time. How do how do people in villages feel about tourism mm. now? I mean, I don't even know how I, my mood about tourism changes. <laughs> Some yeah. days I don't have warm, fuzzy feelings when you see sort of the underside of bad yeah. behavior from tourists and so on. Yes, um, I think this is very important because um, even myself, when I'm here, as a Pacific, I'm sitting here talking to you as a Pacific Islander, um, and I'd love to welcome anyone. Um, but, you know, when, when I think of, of 
tourism done very badly. Um, I feel that, you know, there is a lot to be done in terms of equalizing the way we provide or we care for our visitors and also the way visitors need to respect Mm -hmm. Um, host communities or host countries eh? Um, Mm -hmm. and so you know it's still very much an industry that you know it can be good and it can be bad Mm -hmm. Um, and for me um, my job on a daily basis I think of um, you know when I think about customer service and tourism like when you're working in a hotel as a Pacific Islander and locals come into the hotel and visit, uh, visitors from abroad come into the hotel. If you can't look after your local people and if you're not nice to your local people, then mm. you're definitely not in, in the right industry. Eh? Mm-hmm. And so there's um, yeah, good sides and bad sides, but um, sustainable tourism has become that, um, that tool or the platform that we are now using or capitalizing on to promote uh, destination, proper destination management, you know, for mm-hmm. us looking after the environment and looking after, looking at, really looking at the negative impacts of tourism. We can't just be running after the money. And I think for our countries in the Pacific, though, we are very small and we don't have um, much resources um, you know, we rely, some, some of our countries rely on tourism for livelihoods, and which is good, and that's why it's an economic sector. But um, we have to balance it, and we have to put in place um, the right systems that will help our country thrive as tourism destinations, but that thriving depends on management of visitor expectations, making sure that our communities and our people are at the center of tourism development. So we're not just here for tourism, but visitors are welcome to enjoy what we offer as specific destinations. Mm-hmm. It's a different, it is a different mindset. Yes, and we're very blessed to be in this part of the world because everything is centered around community and mm. um, shared prosperity. Mm-hmm. Um so it's about everybody living together and sharing whatever we have, whether it's food, whether it's money, whether it's, you know, the land or mm-hmm. the sea. You know, um, we say in the Pacific, we are one vaka. We are one vaka, vaka or vaka means canoe or ship, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and so because we don't have much, but we have so much um, in common, in the way our people in this region live, um, there's been a lot of, you know, um, traveling between the islands in the past. Our ancestors are navigators, and so they move from place to place. And so this, if you go around the Pacific, there's no country that is the same, but also there is so much that we share in common. So it's about us living together selflessly, and putting the other um, before yourself. Eh? Um, in my country, uh, we have a proverb that says the path to leadership is through service. Mm. So, yeah, it's all about 
serving others and putting others before you. So when you come to a problem like climate, yes. where I feel so much of the world has been, you know, we spend a decent amount of time trying to figure out how to message a future us. You know, there's like me and future me, and then there's future us. And we, when it comes to climate, we have to come together in large and small ways for this shared collective. We all share the same air, but that's an argument maybe that you don't have to make as strongly. How do, how do you all feel about climate? Do you see this as a communal problem or opportunity? <laughs> <laughs> um, it's both. Um, it's a global uh, challenge, but it also gives us a global opportunity to work together. Um, we cannot isolate ourselves from what is happening around the world, so we have to um, raise our voices and tell our stories about the impacts that we are facing in the South. Um, but it means that um, there's a lot of change and action that needs to happen. Um, so on a daily basis, um, we think of sinking islands. We mm. think of livelihoods being robbed from our people who are dependent on the sea and the land for subsistence living. Um, we, in the tourism industry, um, those coastal tourism communities are losing their white sandy beaches that they depend on for um, support. And so... The beaches are just being eroded. Yes, there's a lot mm -hmm. of coastal erosion. And so when you don't have a beach, you don't have tourism, you know. Mm -hmm. Everybody comes to the Pacific because of the tropical scenery and, you know, we have the image of beautiful white sands. Um, sandy beaches. So um, when all of that is gone, then um, what have we to offer, you know, in terms of tourism? But um, the re displacement of our people themselves, you know, tourism is not just about the, the businesses that are offering, um, you know, services to visitors. It's about the total destination. So when people in the villages are losing their land, land is our identity. Um, mm. We, we, we don't have a lot of freehold land. Um, we don't rent houses. Uh, we live in our own communal land. And so when you don't have your land, you don't have anywhere else to, to go to. So you can't be like just moving from, um, you know, one place to another. That's, you know, where you're born and where you are going to be buried when you die. So, yeah. It's so deep. You don't own or rent apartments. You just live. Yes. Yes. A, I'm really trying to wrap my head around that. I did not know that. So you wouldn't just, if you moved to New York, because you yeah. could move to New York, Christina yeah. could pack up and she could move to New York and rent an apartment and sign a lease. If a, if a New Yorker wanted to move to Samoa, what would they do? <laughs> Could they rent an apartment? They would have to find a family willing to share their land? Yeah. 
So that's the sad reality of us in the Pacific, eh? 80 to 90% of our land is communally owned. Mm. So you can't sell it. Mm. Maybe lease land for development, but a very, very tiny proportion of land is leased. But yeah, mm. that's how we live. So we can't just move from one village to another. You, if you, you have to stay where you are. Otherwise, um, there's no choice. There's no other option. So that's why it's so important to protect our land as much as yeah. possible. That is a strong bond that not everybody feels. To I mean, I feel connected to my land in mm-hmm. Alaska and California and New Mexico. Mm-hmm. But it, mine in sort of the sense of like that I've had grand experiences, not like I own vast swaths of it <laughs> or, you know, it's just sort of mine through experience and I feel close to it, but not in this way. So, wow, that's so that's very incredible. So when I mean, small island states, we talk about being sort of first and worst, the yeah. first hit with all the climate and the worst, what are some of the, not to drag us into a, a dark conversation, but briefly highlight some of the things that you are experiencing. I lo- noticed in our notes also, you remarked on the higher demand, um, for example, for air conditioning <laughs> in places closer to the equator. Like, give me the, <laughs> give us the, the little sketch of climate effects in your area. Yeah, well, let's start off with um, the higher temperatures that we are experiencing. So in this part of the world, we are very warm. Um, and so the climate is getting warmer and warmer. And so the air is hot. So, of course, that's what we face on a daily basis. So um, for islands that are very close to the equator, it means that when you are there, you're expecting the heat to be very, very you know, uh, strong. And so if you, you, almost families, families and even the hotels you go into, you're expecting, you know, cooling um, mm. facilities. Eh? And mm. so air conditions are very, very important for most any country in the Pacific. So expect uh, to check into a hotel and the air con is almost everything. It's Arctic. Yeah. Yes. And everybody looks for the air con the first time they check in or they might mm-hmm. inquire and say, okay, is there air con, you know, mm-hmm. available? You know, although we have our beautiful open hearts, you know, I come from Samoa where our iconic um, accommodation type is our open hearts on the beach. So there's no need for air conditioning. The, the heat can be very unbearable at times, you know. Um, so that's an example of, you know, um, impacts of climate change. And then there's um, every year we have to brace ourselves for cyclones. And in the past, we've been, uh, you know, um, hit by category one, two, you know, the weaker cyclones. But, you know, we've now expecting category four and five um, Mm. every year. So it's not going to be a surprise for us. It's an expectation now Mm. that every year you will expect to be hit by a category five cyclone. And then um, flooding, like, you know, we 
countries that have mountains or islands that have mountains, the rivers will be flooded. Heavy rain, there will be too. When it rains, it will be very intense. There'll be a lot of downpours and causing um, flash flooding, uh, which means that you have to, um, the infrastructure along those rivers will be damaged every mm -hmm. year. You have to constantly, constantly rebuild. And it's a, it's a natural scene in the Pacific now. It's like a common scene, not, not a natural scene, common scene now when you see governments investing a lot of money in rebuilding roads, rebuilding mm -hmm. bridges, you know, um, because of the constant flooding that we are facing. So it's all of this. And then um, it, for tourism, the marine life, you know, um, is going to be um, changing. A lot mm. when you see coral reefs dying. So mm. diving may not be a pleasant experience for our visitors. So, you know, some of the real, real issues that we are facing in this part of the world. So, How do you, and I know this has been, you know, part of your local outreach also around awareness building for climate change and some of the local actions. I know we talked about one before. Can you share again about the plastics. Plastics are really interesting because they uh, contribute to climate change, both in their production and in their degradation. As plastics break down, they release more chemicals. What, um, and it, I, I think you had focused on plastics in some of your work. Can you share a little bit about that? Yes, um, we are contributing in a very small way, um, but we are tying it to community livelihoods. Um, mm -hmm. So, what, you know, tourism in the we work a lot with the creative industry. Um, so, with um, artists and who are doing, you know, really beautiful handicrafts and all of that. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, our small flagship project that we've been working on is um, called the Pacific Tourism Waste Action Initiative, where we engage a local renowned artist in Fiji to train mm -hmm. women and youth and men in selected villages to craft um, jewelry or um, household items or decorative items out of uh, PET bottles. Mm -hmm. um, it's a small way of contributing, um, but it gives the communities the opportunity to at least get a little bit of money. But at the same time, we're creating that awareness about looking at plastic mm -hmm. in a different way. Mm -hmm. That when we see a plastic floating on the, mm -hmm. you know, in the sea, we pick it up and we say, okay, this is worth $20 dollars mm -hmm. you know of crafts you know um and the the idea is to engage also with the tourism industry and have the hotels collaborate with the, the communities in taking their um bottled plastic water um the waste bottles and um give it to the communities who can do something creative out of it what about cruises what's <laughs> your feeling on cruise well we uh, um I mean, because we're so far away from the rest of the world, right? Um, and I, I guess in terms of tourism, access and connectivity to the mm -hmm. Pacific is our biggest challenge when it comes to bringing people here. So, of course... A lot of people come on cruises. Yes. And so that's why an opportunity, cruise is being looked at as an opportunity to bring a lot of people at once um, and it might be cheaper that way 
uh, cruises will come anyway and they'll be responsible for selling their packages and all of that. So destinations don't really do much, eh? um, but uh, I mean, invest a lot. Eh? Um, but when you're looking at air services, air services, countries can't afford to put in flights eh, to different parts of the world. And so it, it's, it becomes a very impossible exercise for a lot of our small island states. So we're at the mercy of the airlines. It's so expensive to travel here. And so that's why cruise is a, is, is a very, um, uh, you know, good and good option yeah, economically for, for, for the Pacific. And there are some of our countries are very dependent on, on cruise tourism. Um, but for me, um, I, I see it as an industry that can be um, extractive in the sense mm. that we are very small islands. Um, and when you look at the way cruises, uh, uh, you know, the cruise industry is structured, you know, we have to question ourselves how much of that money from cruise stays in country and how many mm. people at community level are benefiting. Mm. They don't stay overnight, but, you know, it's uh, a lot of the when, – when I am worried. I'm always worried what happens before the cruise gets at, uh, you know, you know docked at port and what happens after when they leave because mm -hmm. we don't have the capacity, we don't have the resources, those surveillance. Um, you don't have recycling. They all get yes. off the ship and leave their trash. Yes. And I mean, so, even they put it in a bin. But mm -hmm. then how do you even manage? Yeah, like I'm worried about the ocean, the vast ocean. Eh? Like uh, mm -hmm. where does that rubbish go to and who's going to monitor it? It's so mm -hmm. a lot of unknowns there. Um, but also the fact that, visitors everything it's like a prepaid trip mm. so um where where where's the economic return like is it um for with communities or with the industry i don't think so um i think we get very very little out mm. of a um an industry that is um going to pose a lot of environmental issues for our small country mm. i'd like to see more ex you know small expedition type of cruising mm -hmm. um, where like you know you, you mm -hmm. don't have a big ship coming on shore right mm -hmm. um, you have people that can connect with the community the mm -hmm. good thing about cruises is that they go right out to the rural areas and communities there are able to you know showcase their culture um, they pay uh, money to go enter a community and so we're spreading the tourism dollar widely right yeah. Um, but for me, I, I'd be very happy to know if um, there's platforms where we can advocate for mm -hmm. change in the cruise industry. You can't say cruise is going sustainable when they don't change to greener fuels, mm -hmm. when they don't uh, change to smaller cruises. Um, so, yeah, um, So and when they only change the physical um, you know, uh, whatever happens to the ship, the design, the physical design of the mm -hmm. ship, about mm -hmm. the operations, how do you manage your waste? You go to a country, you have to get clean water, you have to offload your wastewater, you know, and the waste. So it's like, you know, passing the problem from one country to another.
I want to ask you a little bit about your family. So you are, how big is your family? Are you, are you big, <laughs> big family with, uh, you know, are you the whole village? <laughs> well, um, yeah. So I've, I have uh, six children married. With six you have children. six children? Yes, I do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I come from a family of nine, but yeah, I'm the middle child, so number five, four above me and four below me. Mm. And um, yeah, I have six of my own. So my eldest is going to be 21 and uh, my youngest is 13 years old. I have two girls and four boys. The eldest is 21. What's yes. the youngest? Youngest is 13 years old. Wow. Way to go, mama. <laughs> Very busy mama. Oh, I can never afford to take a time off. I'm a working mama. Incredible. Do they, do, did all the kids help out? Everybody does something? Yes. Um, I have a, a network of people at home. <laughs> who, are, so who are helping with the chores. Yeah. What, um, who does the cooking? Oh, my husband, my dear husband, Tommy does the cooking. I don't even come near anything nice, you know, that I can cook. I want to know if your husband's doing all the cooking, what's one of his specialties? What's the Samoan specialty? Mm. So that'll be taro, a root crop. Um, so it'll be, um, this, Pacific version of potato. <laughs> yep. Who doesn't love potatoes? Yeah. <laughs> so taro either um, boiled and then um, soaked with coconut cream. Mm. Um, and then palusami. Palusami is uh, taro leaves um, and coconut cream. So baked and um, taro leaves is... Uh, mixed with um, coconut cream. So everything here is like coconut cream is sort of like the main sauce. Mm -hmm. uh, but we love meat. <laughs> mm -hmm. So um, usually we um, have roast, roast chicken, pork or lamb jobs. Mm -hmm. um, but these are like not every day. It's like three times a week, especially mm -hmm. on Sundays. And then, um, yeah, um, a salad to top it up. So um that's what um, we like at home. Um, but then he also does the most amazing um, oka. We call it oka, O-K-A in Samoa, which is um, typically raw fish in coconut cream. So I'm also envisioning, uh, are you all, you're not, you're not all living in an unair conditioned beach <laughs> hut. You're in something different. Yes. yes. Yes, we live in a in a nice, beautiful place here in Suva, Fiji. What kinds of things do you read? What kind of music do you like? <laughs> what is your husband like? What's playing around the house? Well, my husband likes um, to listen to someone music. He misses mm -hmm. home a lot, mm -hmm. um, but he also loves country music. I love country music, um, and I love John Denver. Um, you know, me too. 
uh, yeah. women is like, you know, I've never been to the US. I've never been to the US, but um, West Virginia seems yeah. to be a very nice place. Um, but it yeah. reminds me of home. Like, you know, you mm. can see it. And when it comes to West Virginia, I'm imagining going home. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's so... Yeah. Christina, thank you so, so much for making time today. I learned a lot from you. I can't wait to talk again in, in some some forward time and hear, hear what progress has been made. Thank you so much, Christina, for having me on your podcast. <laughs>